Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. You're listening to White Coat Black Art in the Summer. This is an encore of an episode that aired in December 2022. These days we hear a lot about PTSD. The symptoms include flashbacks, nightmares, hypervigilance, and aggressiveness. It can come after exposure to many traumas or just one. Across the board, 9% of Canadians will get PTSD at some point in their lives. Among police officers, it's more like 29%. That's according to the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Until recently, treatments have been largely unsuccessful. But that's changing thanks to a new approach that includes psychedelics like ketamine. Once they were club drugs, now they're helping to heal first responders. Hello. You're meeting Rob? I am. I'm Brian. You're Brian? Yes. Come on. Thank you. A clinic in Calgary is leading the way through treatment and research. Recently, I went there to check it out. Do you want me? Can I give you a tour before we start? Sure. That sounds yeah, great. I think we should do that. Okay. So, yeah. So, before you give me the tour, why don't you just say, you know, hi, my name is. Tell me what you do. Sure. Hi, I'm Dr. Rob Tangay. I'm the chief medical officer and co-founder of the Newly Institute. So this is, initially, this was actually uh, just for education, so we'll have the chairs out. I do presentations. Our front end, as you saw, is pretty small because we treat a lot of first responders. The belief was first responders didn't want to be seen. They wanted to be quiet and hidden. So they would text and we'd let them know if they were at Starbucks, their appointments ready or whatever. Now they uh, all hang out and it got too small there, so we shifted this into a winning area as well. But again, that means we're winning. We're breaking stigma. We're making it okay to ask for help. The Newley Institute has clinics across Canada. This one, located in the trendy inner-city Mission neighbourhood, is the flagship. Dr. Robert Tangay, the clinic director, says the clinic's name is meant to signify a new way of doing things. It's got a bit of that spa life, but it's also that, you know, like the wave and the waterfall. This is where water releases energy and then comes to a calm. That new way focuses not just on the body, but the psyche and the spirit one they use to treat addiction, chronic pain, and PTSD. Tangate says they don't just focus on the traumas that triggered the PTSD, but on the full history of clients like the one we're about to meet. Hi, my name is Jazz Kainth, and I'm a police officer here in the city of Calgary, and I was part of the first cohort here at the Newley Institute. Jazz Kainth is a middle-aged man with a wiry frame and dark eyes. He talks with his hands. He's been with the Calgary Police Service for 22 years. Which one were you in? Number seven. This is my room. Our tour ends in room seven on the third floor, one of several where clients, many of them police officers, receive ketamine as part of their treatment. The tiny room is painted in neutral colors and is dominated by a light brown leather recliner. This was Jazz's room. What was it like the first time you went in here? The first time I walked in, I was, uh, I was extremely scared. I didn't know. I actually wanted uh, a clinical doctor to come out in, in a in, in a white, white overcoat. 
and to treat me, but I didn't get that here, um, and I, I wanted it. And you can walk into this room with a sense of, what, fondness, nostalgia? What is it? I actually have been back in this room for ketamine treatment after the outpatient program, and it's a trigger, but... People associate, but it, people associate the word trigger with negative, and usually that is there is a negative connotation. But for me, being in here right now, it's a it's a positive trigger, if that makes sense at all. It, it's um, I feel exuberant uh, being in this room right now. Uh, it reminds me of getting better and and being healthy. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Hey? A positive trigger. I think yeah. that's the that's the that's the reframing message of the uh, of the entire of the entire story, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think um, people have a right to get better and not suffer, and it's a remarkable transformation that we see. And even you know, getting to meet Jazz the first time, <laughs> he was super skeptical and scared, which was totally normal. Uh, and to see him at the end, when we did that, uh, we brought in a bunch of the peers for Calgary Police Services and gave him a tour and we went to the drum room and uh, I'm going to call you out here, but yeah. Jazz got quite emotional. Yeah, uh, but, you know, and we talked and it was a positive trigger for him as well of remembering like how powerful treatment can be. And treatment doesn't have to be once a week, once every two weeks for the rest of your life. It can be in an intensive eight hour a day uh, program and help powerful emotionally as in as in crying yes in front of your peers yes wow talk about destigmatizing um yeah male toxicity or whatever uh, phrase you want to use um machoism in policing there is a lot of it's male driven there's a lot of there is a medicine too by the way yeah <laughs> uh and it was uh, it's it's difficult being vulnerable because you're 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 there's a fear of being judged this person is weak. This person, how can that person handle, you know, dealing with somebody else's trauma or a murder scene or, a, or a, an accident scene if they can't even control or regulate themselves? And you put on a mask and you do it. You soldier on. But inside, it, it, it doesn't heal. Breaking your leg is easy because everybody sees it. And everybody sees your cast and knows. But when it, there's trauma inside, uh, deep-rooted trauma, Nobody sees it. Let's start from the beginning of your career. Why did you decide to become a police officer? And it, I did, this just came to me not all that long ago. I wanted to save people in the way that I wasn't saved when I was a child uh, and I endured trauma. So this is just a projection of what I wanted as a child and, and didn't get it. Uh, not that I can go out and save everybody, but I can do my best to help. And you've been a police officer for 22 years? That's and so the, the first day that you put pen to paper and, and wrote that application, that wasn't in your mind that, that you wanted to save people or spare people? What happened to you? Not at that time, no. Prior to that, I was also a correctional officer with the Correctional Service of Canada for two years, and I daily met with people who were perpetrated uh, sex crimes. And I myself was... I don't like the word victim, but uh, a person who had to endure uh, sexual assault as a child. Uh, and it was difficult, and it just compounded and compounded and compounded through my, my career as a correctional officer and uh, as a police officer as well. How old were you 
when you suffered sexual trauma? Six years old. My God. And were you aware of it at the time? Were the memories buried? It's always there. It, uh, I describe my trauma as right here, uh, prior, I used to describe my trauma as almost a, a semi-eye patch. And now the trauma is still in my orbit, but it's further away. And there's some days that uh, it can't even touch me. And I, I, I credit that to, uh, to the ketamine and to the New Institute. We'll get to hear how that happened in a moment. Here's a bit more of Jazz's backstory. He worked in corrections before joining the Calgary Police Service, all the while pushing aside his own history of childhood sexual abuse. In 2006, he made detective. Jazz says he was relieved when his supervisor told him he'd been assigned to investigate sex crimes and not child abuse. An hour later, the supervisor called back and told Jazz that he was assigned to child abuse after all. You didn't tell the, the person who told you you were being assigned to the child abuse unit that, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to take that job. I really wish I would have. The, I had... Uh, I had like I, I felt like I had a lot of responsibilities. I was the first turban-wearing member of the, of the Calgary Police Service. I didn't want my uh, cohorts to say, "Hey, he uh, he was a minority hire and he can't handle this." S- secondly, I didn't want my cohorts to think he's a police officer. Why didn't he do anything about this now? Why hasn't he dealt with it? I didn't want anybody to think I was weak. I every decision I made in my life up till not, not that long ago, was based in deep-rooted guilt and shame. Didn't even know who I was until the ketamine. It was like a, a local anesthetic for my brain. So you had the primary trauma that we're not talking a lot about when you were six years old. And each and every time you had an episode where you were investigating child abuse, it was secondary trauma. Were these, what effect were these having on you in terms of building up a bank of trauma? I knew that um, it just compounded and compounded and manifested itself in nightmares, not being able to sleep, uh, not being able to empathize with people that on, on a level that I, I thought I could. And I just was frustrated and fed up and didn't felt like I didn't have anywhere else to turn and the alternative was that I didn't feel like I was worthy to to be loved worthy of anybody's anybody worrying about me I wasn't worthy of it I wasn't maybe even worthy of walking on this planet you had thoughts of self-harm did you did you ever try no no and yet you stuck in the job you stayed there and you were operating as a law enforcement officer, still are, in a culture, at least back then, that was what, suck it up, buttercup? When I joined the, the, the police service in 2000, our psychological services area, the, uh, it was known as Dr. Bonkers. And there was, there was a negative stigma attached to psychological services and seeking help. So with that moniker of Dr. Bonkers, there was no way, no way that as a rookie officer, I was going to seek help. There was not going to happen. Uh, I didn't, 
I didn't want to face that stigma. So psychological services was way off in the corner in a place, in a deep, dark place that I didn't uh, acknowledge and I never wanted to associate myself with. Did you ever go there? I did go there once on the precipitous of, uh, of a work-related matter. And when I actually did go to seek help and I decided it's time, I actually used the illusion of a health check uh, to go in to talk to psychological services. And I, when I sat down, I said, just so you know, I don't want to waste your time. I'm not here for the health check. I need help. And this is what I need help with. And that was back in 2019. Something happened back then that Jazz doesn't want to talk about that triggered a crisis. And I know that you don't want to talk about what the trigger was, but what were you feeling at that time? Can you tell me a little bit about what you were feeling inside that made you say, you know, that the pain of continuing the way you were was greater than the pain that you would face trying to deal with it? It was just a sense of worthlessness and not being worthy of anything good. I was worthy of everything bad, but any positive emotion or feeling, I wasn't worthy of it. I didn't deserve it. What was it like then working in the child abuse unit? It was horrific. It was, uh, it was, so that's when I know I really got good at disassociating. What does that mean? For me, disassociating, because I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD, I was stuck in a, in, a, in a trauma, negative trauma loop as a six-year-old. And then whenever I endured any sort of stress, of course, there's fight or freeze. As a six-year-old, I couldn't fight this, this individual. I couldn't run away, so I froze. So whenever I endured stress, such as interviewing a, a victim of a, of a child abuse, I would uh, disassociate from that and focus in on just the job that needed to be done. And I wouldn't focus on anything, anything else. I would put away that, that trauma that was right here. I tried my best to push it away and soldier on and get the job done like everybody expected me to. Was the Newly Institute your first stop after that trigger in 2019, or did you go anyplace else first? Uh, I, I tried um, a couple of different talk therapies, a couple of different uh, clinicians and practitioners, and then I read about ketamine and the use of psychedelics, which I, I alluded to it earlier, was very scary for me. And uh, I used it, and it helped, and I'm here. We'll be right back. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, one law enforcement officer's journey back from PTSD, thanks in part to ketamine. As Jazz Kaint just said, he tried conventional treatments like talk therapy before going to the Newley Institute. There, he entered a month-long intensive treatment program that included seeing a psychologist and a nurse practitioner and lots of information sessions. Then came the ketamine. 
There's an intriguing hypothesis as to how it works. Some researchers think the stress experienced by people with PTSD causes brain cells that carry thoughts and memories to be unable to communicate with one another. That induces a mental state known as dissociation. Ketamine may work by blocking the brain chemical that enables dissociation to occur. The Newley Institute doesn't treat patients with ketamine alone. The medication is combined with up to 150 hours of therapy. Dr. Robert Tange, the medical director of the Newley Institute, says they look at a patient's entire history, not just the event that triggered the PTSD. He says that's very different from the conventional approach. Dr. Tange, you've been sitting and, and, and listening quietly but nodding furiously. Can you react to, to some of the things that, that uh, the jazz has been saying? Like, what are the things that stick out the most? Well, I think the hardest part is trying to keep my own emotions in check. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful story. And we often don't approach childhood traumas. Uh, we recognize it as a risk for whatever is ailing you today, but we don't approach it. We look at it like Pandora's box. And, and we've really taken that opposite approach. Uh, we're going to look at it and we're going to deal with it. What he's talking about is what we see in so many of our first responders, but not just first responders, other areas of the public. As mentioned, you know, we have 30, 40 first responders in clinic every month, uh, and many of them have childhood traumas. Some don't. Many just have trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And we, the classic approach is to pick what's the incident trauma. We're going to treat that. You're fine. Go back to work. We want to build these trauma timelines like he spoke about. What's that? Can you so say more about that? We're going to ask you some... We're going to start with the incident trauma, right? But then we're going to expand to your earliest memory and your earliest trauma. And, and your trauma may be different than my trauma. But we, we often just ignore those things. And we, we focus on what's happening today. And, and I think... You know, his story is very much about how I look at most of mental health. We're very good at picking the dandelion heads and looking at our green lawn after and saying, oh, look at us. And then a week later saying they're back. What, what are we doing wrong? And we've tried to take that approach. We're going to treat the root of the cause in the first place. And, and it is a journey. I love that we talked about that. Uh, it's a journey and it continues forever. Uh, but suffering can end and there is a cure for that suffering um, the trauma can become resolved and we get to see that we we have cohorts of people who come through programs without ketamine and cohorts with ketamine uh, we can treat those people without it just takes weeks to months longer uh, and when we're talking about suffering although the statistician will say they're the same to that person who's been suffering, a few months of no longer having to suffer is powerful. Jazz, can you walk me through the first time you tried ketamine? You were, you were given ketamine, you know, what it was like. You, there may be some details you don't want to talk about, but, but I think for people who haven't had that experience, they, they'd like to get a sense of what it was like. My ketamine, and I actually haven't shared this story, but uh, Dr. Tangi, I don't think you've heard this story. Um, the most profound session was the background is a U.S. congressional hearing. That's the background. It's the best way I can describe it. And I'm standing on the ground and I'm looking up. And I'm not looking up. I'm looking up like my neck is strained. And even now as I talk about it, I remember that strain. My neck, like I'm looking straight up and there's a severe strain in my neck. And there's a high bench there. And there's four 
people on this bench, and they're very angry, very, very angry. They are religious figures. I'll leave it at that for now. And they asked, me, they asked me two questions, but they weren't really questions. They asked me, they said to me, angrily, pointing down at me, how did you let this happen? And why did this happen? So when they said to me, how did you let this happen? They actually, the me was the people of the planet. So these were religious figures who were saying, our thought process and our, our ideologies wasn't to differentiate and kill each other based on your skin color, based on your creed, based on your religion, based on your caste. How did you people mess this up so badly? How did you feel as you emerged from this vision? Profound. If somebody's projecting anger towards me, happens every day. I try my best to think it's not me, it's the trauma that they're carrying that uh, they're projecting onto me. This is not, I'm just a convenient or inconvenient uh, messenger or person who happens to be here. It's not me, it's the trauma. That's a very profound shift in perception. And it has stayed with you since then? Other than uh, a few times on Deerfoot Trail when I've uh, endured uh, some road rage, other than that, uh, I reckon... It's not hard to do it on that road. Yeah. That's right. Even the, the perpetrator, um, I do feel that perhaps this individual, this happened to him, uh, or there was some other trauma that he wasn't a, didn't deal with, and this was an outlet, and I was the inconvenient outlet. Um, and that's still difficult for me to operationalize in my mind, but uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that before. But now I'm able to take a couple seconds and think, what else is going on with this person? Dr. Tange, you're hearing this for the first time. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I love that you called it a vision. I think that the ketamine is profound. It's a great molecule that can make a massive difference. Uh, and it opened him up and allowed him to accept where he was and allowed him to move forward into his therapy. You know, imagine if that's all it was. You came in, you, you did a ketamine treatment, you got to witness this, and then you go home and that's it. Uh, and that was, that was never the case. I mean, the next day you got a ton of therapy about that. And then the next day you got to do the treatment again. And, and that's an important point for everybody yes. listening to this to understand. It's not just about the cat. I mean, it's about the whole, the processing that goes along with it, the guided processing that goes along with it. But the barriers come down and, and everybody has a different experience and a different, some people are more visual and they see things more visual. Some people are more audio and they hear things. What's happening is that neuroplasticity is occurring immediately. And we're, we're making changes uh, to the frontal lobes and other areas of the brain that are happening rapidly. Uh, and they present themselves so different for so many people. But everyone who works here the next day, they're like, wow, it's just already a massive change. Can you say a little bit more about what, what neuroscientists think uh, ketamine is doing in the brains of people who have PTSD? The first thing that occurs, you have massive... Uh, uh, blood flow occurring in areas of the brain. Uh, we know that you know mental illness, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's PTSD, lead to changes in the brain. 
areas that are more involved with anxiety and fight or flight are way activated. Other areas that are more on, uh, you know, the the cognition and, and how to uh, kind of our frontal lobes and how to how to think our way through that get uh, suppressed. Uh, so we have these major changes in the brain that rapidly shift after just a few treatments, sometimes just one treatment. And so you're, you're just kind of, it's like imagine taking your antidepressant where it worked the first day rather than having to wait weeks and weeks to get some sort of effect if you're lucky. Uh, it happens immediate. Ketamine has its downsides. The drug can trigger nightmares. There are also concerns that some doctors who give ketamine may not practice to the highest standards. There are clinics that we've heard about uh, in places like the United States that are giving this treatment a bit of a bad name. Mm. Yeah, there's a profit narrative here. And, and I think the one thing we don't do is, is herd people in and out rapidly. There's a lot of time to rest, to take your time here. Um, we want to create a holistic model. Most ketamine programs are IV ketamine clinics run by anesthesia. You get in, you get your IV, you get checked. Once the IV's done, you're out and your driver better be taking you home. And that can give it a pretty bad name. And there's others that are letting people do it at home. And, you know, ketamine, although not very addictive, is, uh, is liked. And so there is a, a risk of it being diverted and nobody's allowed to do that here either. Uh, so there's, there's easy ways to get into hot water with this. Uh, if you're not taking a holistic approach, if you're not taking the right approach and you know, the whole point is to help people. So Jazz, where are you at now in your journey, in your process as you've talked about it? The fact that I can talk about guilt and shame dictating how I live my life and now it, it exists, but uh, on a very, very small level. Uh, and this is my true self, and I don't let those thoughts and feelings and, and emotions dictate who I am and who I need to be in, in certain situations in, in certain, to certain people. I can be my authentic self. Unfortunately, there are a lot of first responders who have followed in your footsteps, who, who have suffered trauma on the job. What do you say to them? What do you want to say to them now, especially with the way you're feeling now? You're not alone and seek help. And if the first time you seek help doesn't work, please try again. And if that second time doesn't work, please try again. And if that time doesn't work, please try again. I think you're also saying that they would do better with the approach you had. I hope that uh, everybody is able to experience what I experienced. There's growing evidence that ketamine helps patients with major depression who haven't responded to antidepressants. When it comes to people with PTSD, there isn't a lot of scientific proof yet. Jazz Kent says he responded to treatment in some profound ways. It'll take something more than stories like that before ketamine enters the mainstream. That's our show this week. If you'd like to comment, our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Stephanie Dubois with help from Jeff Goods, Sujata Berry, and senior producer Colleen Ross. Our digital producer is Ruby Buisa. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.